I'm going to show you how great I am. This was our final power. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. Hello and welcome to How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson. Today's episode is something special. It's something that I'm borrowing from another podcast. That podcast is called The Cost of Glory. And I discovered it a few months ago, sometime last year. And some people recommended it to me and told me, hey, this podcast is pretty similar to yours. You should give it a listen. And I really liked it. It's one of my favorite podcasts. It's incredibly well-researched and produced. The host of the podcast is named Alex Petkus, and he actually has a PhD in the classics from Princeton. So when it comes to researching some of these ancient Greeks and Romans, he can actually do it in the original Greek and Latin, and he's super knowledgeable about that time period and those people. He was a professor out in California uh, teaching the classics, and so he has some experience in academia, but he also left academia and helped run a family business. So he's got experience in the real world, in the business world as well. So I think that gives him a really interesting perspective on some of these ancient figures in terms of being able to relate to their time period and knowing all about it, but also knowing the real world and being able to relate it to the problems that you know people in business face as well. So if you like my podcast, I think you'll love Alex's podcast as well. Today, I'm going to be playing the first episode in a three-part series on the Roman dictator Sola. If you recognize Sola's name, it's probably as the bad guy in the beginning of the Julius Caesar story. He almost has Caesar killed when Caesar's just a young man because they were in opposite factions in a civil war in Rome. And Sola is known as a bad guy, not just because of his antagonistic relationship with Julius Caesar, but because uh, he had lots of political enemies killed. So why do an episode about him? Well, as Alex shows us in this episode, he's a, a much more complex and fascinating figure than, than just a straight villain. And I think Alex does a fantastic job sort of bringing him to life and showing why he's a really intriguing, interesting figure. Uh, some of my favorite parts of the episode are his adoption of the name Felix, which means lucky, and how he sort of runs with that. Rather than taking it as an insult that, oh, I'm just lucky, he uses it as a tool to say, yeah, I mean, just think about it. I really can't take any of the credit for the fact that I'm so handsome and I win all my victories and I win all my elections and everything goes great when I'm in charge. It's really just a blessing from the gods. And so to me, that's an amazing way to turn something around that could have been kind of an insult. Felix, you're just lucky into uh, a great compliment for himself and something that people can rally around and a reason to follow him. And one of the other things I love about Sola um, and something that really comes through in, in Alex's telling of the story is... Um, well, so on his tomb, he had a famous epigraph written. The gist of it is, here lies Sulla. There never was a better friend nor a worse enemy. I think the literal translation is, none of his friends surpassed him in returning good, nor any of his enemies in returning evil. And I think that's one of the big takeaways for me is this is someone who was obsessed with that idea, was obsessed with returning any favor that he was given, making sure he was never in anyone else's debt. He was prolific in terms of helping friends and putting them in good positions. And if you were his enemy, he was prolific in making sure that you were punished, in making sure that you get the worst end of the conflict. Anyway, I think the episode is great. I think you guys will enjoy it. So here it is. Please enjoy part one on the life of Sola from the cost of glory. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. Hey guys, before we get to the episode, a quick word from today's sponsor, which is me. I have a new company called PodRamp where we make podcasts for influencers. 
If you're someone who has a following on Instagram or TikTok or Twitter, and you'd like to create a podcast to go along with the content that you create on other platforms, and you'd like to make money off of that podcast, then that's what we do at PodRamp. We have some of the best audio engineers and producers in the industry. I think that we make great content. If you love how to take over the world and you think that this is a good podcast, then you'll love the type of shows that we make at PodRamp. You get to record the content and that's it. We take care of everything else from the intro music and outro music to booking your guests for you to finding advertisers, doing everything to make sure that it's an easy and seamless process for you that makes you some money and gives great content for your audience. So again, if you are interested in creating a podcast, check us out at podramp.io. You see a lot of people these days preaching kindness, wearing shirts, putting stickers on things. I guess it's maybe because political life in our days seems to have gotten quite a bit more heated, meaner, uglier. When have the stakes ever seemed so high? I don't know where you live, but in some places, until recently, relatively peaceful first world countries, it's starting to seem to many people like their political enemies are enemies of the state, full stop. Have you ever felt like that? Reflect for a moment, if you will, especially if you're the sort of person who checks the political news a little too much. Well, has there ever been a moment where you had a thought, a bad thought, maybe one that you didn't share out loud, couldn't share, ever? It's not a very Christian thought or democratic, or some might say it's not even a very human thought. You think for just a second, what if the solution to your party's political problems it's not to make a bigger push in the next election. It's not a grassroots campaign. It's not winning over hearts and minds and focusing on the issues. What if the most patriotic thing to do is to slaughter your enemies? Just round them up, every single one of them, or at least as many as you can get your hands on. It's horrible. No, you don't really want to do that. You couldn't even think it, not even for a second. Could you? Well, this is the story of a man who did exactly that. His name was Lucius Cornelius Sulla, or just Sulla for short. He was a Roman and a key player in that long saga that, with the benefit of hindsight, we now recognize as the fall of the Roman Republic. If you've been listening to this podcast, you'll recognize Sulla from the previous Roman lives we've done, the lives of Sertorius and Marius. And it's okay, don't worry if you haven't listened to those. But now we tell things from Sulla's perspective to try to understand the qualities of this man. How did a man who is capable of doing what Sulla did rise to the top of the Roman state? Was he always that way? Was he destined to be that way? Was it despite his cruelty or because of it that he rose? How did he command men's loyalty and affections? What did he stand for? And what on earth could we possibly have to gain from knowing the character of such a man? Welcome to The Cost of Glory, where it is our mission to retell the lives of the great Greek and Roman leaders. And not just that, but to ask, how should we then lead and live and strive? We use Plutarch as our guide, the great first century AD philosopher and biographer, a Greek living under Roman rule, roughly a contemporary of Seneca and Epictetus, St. Paul, Luke the Evangelist. And this is part one of three of the life of Sulla. 
By his late 20s, Lucius Cornelius Sulla was on a fast track to pleasant obscurity. His daily routine was something like this. Wake up around the fifth hour of the morning, that is, 11 a.m., light up some incense and splash some cold water on your face, start shaking off that hangover, and if you're at home, get ready for an earful from your wife. You'll never amount to anything living like this. I never know where you are. Look at your baby, she says. The baby cries. Look at her. She's going to end up a potter's wife, a barmaid, a courtesan. What would your ancestors think? Shame on you. If, however, you happen to spend the night at Miss Nicopolis's house, well, let's just say it was much more peaceful in the morning, more endearing sights to wake up to. And what could Sulla's wife really say? He had been with Nicopolis long before he ever met her. Okay, then, after a meal, get some exercise, make some social calls. Late afternoon, take some time to write. He was working on plays these days. His genre of choice was Adelaine farce. Very classy stuff. A plot might go like this. Maccus and Bucus conspire to seduce old Pappus's delicious young daughter Pamphila by disguising themselves as chunky old witches. Maccus is supposed to get the girl while hungry Bucus gets to clear out Pappus's cellar. But when Pappus catches fat Bucus in the kitchen still dressed as an old hag, the frisky old fart grabs Bucus and starts kissing him. And the climax would have Pappas chasing Bukas out of the bedroom off stage left, Bukas with a basket of sausages in one hand, holding his wig with the other, Pappas hot on his tail, professing his love, both of them stark naked, Maccus off stage right, smooching with his new girlfriend, Pamphila. Roman audiences gobbled this stuff up. It was cheap, raunchy, and repetitive. And in the eyes of Roman high society, they might watch it, but there was zero honor to be had on the stage. Sulla loved it, though. He loved watching it, writing it, and partying with the actors afterwards. He was a good singer, too, and he often had love affairs with the actors, women and men alike. And in his later years, as Plutarch says, even when he had made himself supreme master of Rome, he would daily assemble the most reckless stage and theater folk to drink and bandy jests with them. But who could have foreseen a grand future for Sulla in those days? He was a poor man. Not so poor, mind you, that he had to actually work. But these things are relative, and considering his lineage, he was poor. Sulla was born into the mighty Gens Cornelia, the Cornelius clan, the clan that had produced the Scipios. Corneliuses had been around and been leading Roman armies since the founding of the Republic, 400 years but Sulla's branch these days was minor, poor, contemptible. One of his direct ancestors in his branch, a guy named Cornelius Rufinus, was consul during Rome's great war with King Pyrrhus almost 200 years ago, 290 BC. But the Romans made a law in those days that no household was allowed to possess more than 10 pounds of silver dishes. That was useless luxury. And it was the noble Fabricius himself who charged Cornelius Rufinus with excess silver possession and got him thrown out of the Senate. Sulla's great-great-great-grandfather, or something. And there had been a praetor or two in his lineage since, the second highest rank in Roman offices, but nothing too special. Now, as a boy, Sulla got a proper education in Greek and Latin literature, and I suppose that helps with his drama career, 
But Sulla's father sadly died when Sulla was just a teenager, and the man was so poor that he didn't even leave his son any serious inheritance. There was a little income from their farm, maybe, but not enough to be ambitious. But enough to enjoy life. So Sulla did. He skipped the usual military service you were expected to do in your 20s, a necessary show of patriotism if you ever hoped to attain high office. But what was the point for Sulla? He couldn't even afford a horse. They weren't even wealthy enough to make the property cut off for the equestrian class. So Sulla learned to enjoy the lower pleasures. That was Sulla's life. It was boring, but fun. And it might have all continued that way, and Roman history and world history might have taken a very different course, except things changed close to Sulla's 30th birthday. Two women he loved died. The first woman to die was his father's second wife, that is, Sulla's stepmother. And when she was alive, she doted on him as her only son, and... It turned out in the end that she had a sizable estate and she made him her sole heir. The second was dear old Nicopolis, the lover that he knew and kept since his youth. She was a low-born woman, a complete commoner, but one way or another she amassed a fortune of her own in her life. Maybe she was the daughter of a rich merchant, who knows. But she loved Sulla more than any man in the world. And when she died, he inherited her entire estate— Sulla always found it easy to win the affections of women. He was a good-looking man with reddish-blonde hair, but his wasn't that pure, noble handsomeness, the kind of good looks that made the aristocrats seem like carefree gods set apart from the herd of people. There was something unnerving in Sulla's features. As Plutarch says, quote, "...his personal appearance in general is given by his statues." But the gleam of his gray-blue eyes, which was terribly sharp and powerful, was rendered even more fearful by the complexion of his face. This was covered with coarse blotches of red, interspersed with white. And Sulla's face, famously, would turn redder when he got angry. And when he was later at Athens, some Greek funny guy came up with a song verse that went, "'Sulla is a mulberry sprinkled with oatmeal.'" And the joke was all the funnier for the light-hearted contrast it made with the genuine, overwhelming terror that Sulla's countenance inspired at that point. But that was later. Now, though, with some serious money at his disposal, Sulla saw new possibilities opening up. With money, you can run for office at Rome, and office is the only way anyone ever distinguished themselves in the Roman Republic. The first and necessary rung on the Roman career ladder, the cursus honorum, was quaestor. You were supposed to have had many years of military experience under your belt before you ran, and he was 30, a bit old for quaestor, but this was going to be just about his last chance for making anything of himself. And so, the establishment, maybe showing some compassion on him because of his noble family's present humiliation, they made an exception for Sulla. He was a Cornelius after all, and he was so likable. And so he ran and won himself a post as quaestor for the year 107 BC. And some have speculated that Sulla already knew Marius at that point, and others simply attribute this to his famous good luck that of all the various posts that he could have gotten as one of the dozen or so quaestors for that year, 
Sulla was assigned to be the personal assistant of one of the two consuls for the year, the flashier one, in fact, Gaius Marius. Now, Marius has just come into office riding on a wave of popular anger over the mismanagement of foreign wars. He based his candidacy on the promise of victory for the Romans in their war with the current ruler of Numidia, that is, modern-day Algeria, in North Africa. And the man that the Romans have to defeat is named Jugurtha. And there are other wars going on and other problems to solve, but this is the one that most people have their eyes on. Jugurtha is slippery. He's cultured, he speaks Latin, he's friends with many of the Roman nobility, he's bribed many of them in order to keep himself in power. And the Romans are dragging out the war through incompetence and corruption. And Jugurtha, for his part, is wearing them down with guerrilla tactics, hoping to exhaust their resolve. But now, General Marius is tightening the net. And Sulla brings with him to Africa a large force of cavalry. That was his first job, recruit cavalry from the Italian countryside. And by that point, of course, he's found himself a decent horse. And once he arrives at the Roman base in Numidia, he has two clear objectives for himself. The first is to make Marius look as good as possible. This he can do by being as useful as possible, by working as hard as he can, offering the best insight and intelligence he can come up with, and generally helping Marius achieve anything he wants to. Then, of course, you have to be deferent and humble, shrug off the compliments, never call in any favors, and never, ever speak ill of the consul or his officers or tolerate anyone else doing so in your presence. Second, get the men to love you. How? Once again, work as hard as you can, address the rank-and-file soldiers with camaraderie, exchange banter and business and pleasures with the lowly, and all that comes to him pretty easy. And of course, he has to learn all the arts of war, too, and that very quickly, which he does. And the ancient writer Sallust observes that Sulla went out of his way to do favors for people, and he accepted favors only with the greatest reluctance. And then he made every effort to pay them back as quickly as possible, with interest. And he personally reclaimed nothing from anyone, but rather worked hard so that those who were indebted to him should be as numerous as possible. And, you know, we can suspect here that there was a long-term game that Sulla was playing. An army of people who owed him favors could prove very useful someday. But Sulla was also the sort of man who made doing the most effective thing seem like a carefree accident, an afterthought. You were just too overwhelmed by his easy charm to suspect any ulterior motives. As Sallust wrote, again, Sulla, quote, had an incredible depth of ingenuity for feigning activities and concealing them, end quote. And perhaps it was his aristocratic breeding, such as it was, or perhaps it was his experience of the stage. But either way, Gaius Marius soon senses young Sulla's talent for orchestrating and successfully improvising in great dramas of power. And so, after a major victorious battle in which Sulla brilliantly proved his skill in commanding troops, one of Jugurtha's allies, King Bocchus, is a little worried about Jugurtha's prospects for winning, and in his distress, he sends a message secretly to Marius, asking the Roman general to dispatch his two most trusted men 
to speak privately about their mutual interests. And Marius sends Sulla. There was an older lieutenant also with him, but it was Sulla that was going to do the talking. And now this Bocchus, he happened to be the king of Mauritania, the next realm over to the west, and he was Jugurtha's father-in-law and his most important ally. Really, Bocchus is Jugurtha's only hope for defeating the Romans. And so if Marius could only bring Bocchus over to the Roman side, perhaps even to betray his kinsmen. Well, Sulla spoke very persuasively on this occasion in this tense negotiation, and a few months later, after Bocchus returns west to his kingdom, he sends ambassadors to Rome. Bocchus, that is. Bocchus wants to conclude a separate peace with the Romans. And so Bocchus's ambassadors go, and they return to Africa with the response of the Senate. And the Senate says, the Roman people will be happy to forgive Bocchus's sins against them and have him as an ally as soon as he proves he deserves it. Deserves it. Well, that can only mean one thing. Give them Jugurtha. Next, King Bocchus sends a message to invite his friend, Sulla, to pay him a personal visit. Maybe... He wants the Romans to do the dirty work of actually seizing and holding his son-in-law. So, Marius dispatches Sulla with a small force of guards, and they set out west for Mauritania. And on the way, the little Roman band sights a large contingent of battle-ready Mauritanian cavalry. Uh-oh, is this an ambush? Has Bocchus tricked them? Changed his mind about switching sides? And there's a tense moment. But no, it's Bocchus's son, Prince Volux, and he says he's come to escort Sulla and the Romans to the capital. And so Sulla and the Romans relax a little bit, and they continue on. But then as they're going on, one night, word suddenly comes that Jugurtha himself is nearby with his own army, and he's camped directly on the road that they have to take to King Bocchus's palace. And now Sulla is convinced that the Romans have finally been betrayed. But... Prince Volux approaches him and beseeches him, and he swears by the gods, it's no trick. I'm as surprised as you, trust me. And here's what he proposes. He says, I'll send my men far up ahead of us, and I then will personally accompany you and the Romans unguarded, and we'll walk right past Jugurtha's camp, and if he attacks or tries anything, you can just slay me. But he won't dare. When he sees the Mauritanian flags with you, he won't dare. He won't provoke a war with my father. And, well, Sulla weighs the risk. He could abort the mission, run away, it's getting a little hairy right now, but he reasoned, why save by a shameful flight a life which is unpredictable and perhaps soon destined to pass away through illness or some other misfortune? And so, at first dawn, they march right down to Jugurtha's camp, and Jugurtha is stunned at their sudden boldness, and while he's deliberating what to do, they march right past him unscathed. So, then, they get to King Bocchus's palace, and there is much deliberation going back and forth. Bocchus really is still very hesitant to betray his kinsmen. Isn't there some other way? But then, emissaries come from Jugurtha, and Bocchus tells these guys that he's trying to negotiate a peace with the Romans that will be advantageous to both Jugurtha and Bocchus. And then... Jugurtha sends back a secret message. You know, dear father-in-law, 
will be in an even better negotiating position with the Romans if you will surrender that young noble Roman commander to me as a hostage. Make up some story, catch him off guard. Bocchus shares the secret with Sulla. Ah, Jugurtha has taken the bait, exactly as Sulla hoped. Because it had seemed to Jugurtha like it was his idea. So Sulla and King Bocchus make plans, but it is said that even up to the last moment, the night before, King Bocchus wavered on whether he should do the loyal thing, the good and patriotic thing, honoring the ties of blood and country and history and the many oaths and treaties that he and Jugurtha shared, and turn over the Roman to the Numidian, or whether he should do the smart thing, the expedient thing, and make friends with the most powerful city in the Mediterranean and turn Jugurtha over to Sulla. In the end, Bocchus yields to necessity. Jugurtha comes to a designated hilltop with a few associates, unarmed, putting all his trust in Bocchus, expecting to meet Sulla unarmed there too, expecting to have the last laugh when Bocchus betrays Sulla. But instead, it's Jugurtha and his men who get ambushed by Roman archers. They slaughter everyone else, but capture Jugurtha alive and hand him over in chains to Sulla. Then for his next and final public appearance, Jugurtha was going to be tied to a cart and paraded through the streets of Rome in the glorious triumphal parade of the consul Gaius Marius. And with that, the Numidian War was over. Marius got the glory, of course, but even then, Marius's growing list of political enemies start approaching Sulla. Sulla, isn't it right that you were the man who really ended the war with Jugurtha, who really deserves the Roman people's thanks and admiration? And some historians believe that Sulla, at this point, parried away those compliments and stayed loyal to Marius's honor. But it is true that later, as relations between Marius and Sulla began to turn sour, Sulla could be seen around town wearing a ring that he commissioned, portraying himself leading Jugurtha in chains, as though, indeed, he was the one responsible for the victory. But in those early days, the crisis for Rome was too great for the nobles to indulge their personal grudges. Within just a year after the Numidian triumph, two huge combined Roman armies, 80,000 men, get annihilated in a battle, this time on the northern frontier— the Battle of Arausio. They were fighting against a united army of northern barbarians, Celtic and Germanic peoples, and the main group here was the Cimbri, and they were joined by the Teutones. What made it more disturbing was that this was the culmination of many years of mismanagement, another great testimony to the incompetence of Rome's effete nepotistic nobility. Marius gets elected consul for the second time. He has a mandate now to clean up the mess of the war with the Cimbri. And the Cimbrian wars were happening in a region called Gaul, now the south of France. And from the outset, Marius uses Sulla as his most trusted lieutenant. Sulla runs important missions for Marius in the war, daring missions. Sulla negotiates alliances with several wild Gallic tribes. He captures an enemy chieftain, Copilus of the Tectosages. Things are going well. But the Cimbrian threat is massive. Hundreds of thousands of fighting men trying to invade Italy, and the war ends up taking several years, and Marius is the Romans' best senior general. 
And so, in a completely unprecedented move, the Romans elect him consul for five years in a row in order to ensure victory. They eventually have to send both consuls to fight the war on two fronts, and Sulla very cleverly sees an opportunity here to make his mark as a leader. And here's what he does. He requests a transfer from Marius's army to take up a post in the army of the other consul, a guy named Catullus. And what Sulla told everyone later was, well, Marius was getting jealous, feeling he was being outshined by Sulla, this younger man. And so the great general stopped giving Sulla important duties and advancing him. But it just so happened, and Sulla certainly knew, that Catullus, though he's a decent guy and all, he's really not up to the task of commanding one of the fronts of this hugely important war. It turns out he's desperate for help. Sulla takes over logistics and supply operations, and he commands a major wing of the army in the decisive battle at Vercelli. And so, by the time of the defeat of the Cimbri and the Teutones in 101 BC, Marius is by far the most powerful politician in Rome. He's her greatest, most popular general. But because of his strategic move to Catullus's camp, Sulla is now getting recognized by the Roman soldiers and the Roman nobility alike as a rising star. Maybe the next Marius. And now with these northern invaders vanquished, Rome seemed like it was facing no serious threat to its security. Its European provinces stretched from southern Spain all the way to the Black Sea. The Romans controlled the entire north coast of the Mediterranean. Italy, Illyria, Epirus, Greece, Macedonia, Thrace, Asia Minor. And it held large portions of North Africa too. And for the first time in a decade, there was peace. And with no wars to fight, Sulla's newfound ambition drove him to reach for election to the higher magistracies in the state. He tried to skip the edelship, which was a lower rung on the ladder of offices, a sort of public works commissioner. Instead, he went straight for the praetorship. Praetors, again, were second only to consuls. And these guys had full-time state-appointed muscle to follow them around at all times, the lictors. They had not just authority, but force. Sulla ran for praetor. You could skip rungs like this, but it was hard. And after finding he had a magic touch on military campaigns, now in domestic politics, he smacks into a wall of reality. That is, the entrenched Roman political establishment. He loses. With so many nobles and upstarts running for the praetorship and only six slots per year, the competition is stiff. And the way that the rich and powerful hold sway over voting blocks, even a popular boy wonder is not likely to win the praetorship without having a patron, without attaching himself to a faction. At Rome in Sulla's day, there are two dominant factions. On the one side, you have the entrenched nobility, the rich and the powerful, the figureheads of old families, the conservatives. These go by the name of optimates, or as Cicero often describes them, the bony, the good men. These men like to talk about the virtues that made the Roman Republic great, the sacredness of the Constitution, respect for patrician authority, the dignity of the Senate. On the other side, 
you have the populares, the men of the people. Personally, they are elite politicians themselves, just like the rest, members of the Senate and frequenters of fancy parties, some of them from respectable families even, but they're interested in the ways that the Roman political system can channel the opinions and energy of the lower classes. They're interested in harnessing this power by appealing to the general Roman populace's interests and enthusiasms and rage. And the populares are very good also at occupying and exploiting a certain office in the Roman system called the Tribune of the Plebs, or the Officer of the People, and more on this later. But the leading politician of the populares at this time is the great general Gaius Marius himself, a man who rose from humble origins, first in his family to achieve the consulship, a new man, a novus homo, as they used to call such people. Now, someone like Sulla might see the advantages of either approach. He has deep experience relating to the lower classes, and he understands the power of the great political drama that is daily staged, if you will, before the Roman urban mob, the religious ceremonies, the military parades, the speakers at the popular assemblies, and the games, the gladiators, the races. Yes, but he also knows who he is in his blood, a Cornelius. And it's hard to say why for sure, but in the 90s BC with his career sputtering to get off the ground, Sulla sees an opening with the Optimates and he decides to throw himself in with them entirely. Maybe it was because Marius's authority and leadership of the populares was so absolute and unquestioned. With the populares, every initiative seemed always to boil down somehow to Marius's master plan, to Marius's agenda, his legacy. On the optimate side, however, the show is being run chiefly by Aemilius Scaurus, a dour, censorious social climber, an old man, even older than Marius, Scaurus built his career on a track record of sternness. As consul, he passed a law that forbade Roman nobles from serving imported shellfish and exotic birds at their dinner parties. Really? Foreign shellfish? Yes, it was useless luxury. As Sulla looked around and saw so many contemptible bluebloods in conservative politics, he asked himself, where was the charismatic leadership to be found on the optimate side? Catullus, the frivolous bungler? The Metelli, proud, dutiful, weighty, stupid? Rutilius Rufus, an absurdly honest man, a great secretary? The priestly Mucius Scaevola cousins? Nerds. Yes, whether you chalk it up to the inherited wealth or the inbreeding or the religious fetishism or something else, there was a glaring deficit of charm and vigor among the optimate leadership. These people need him. And he eventually gets them to recognize it. With optimate backing, Sulla gets elected praetor, finally, in 93 BC, seven years after the end of the Cimbrian War, around age 45, and by that time, Sulla has amassed a considerable fortune from all the war booty he's won, and who knows how else. But he is reported to have spent a very large chunk of it pandering to the mob in order to get elected. Feasts and favors and shows and so on. And fittingly, one of the few things that is recorded about Sulla's tenure as urban praetor is his spectacular sponsorship 
and financial underwriting of a gigantic party. It was an annual religious festival called the Apolline Games, the Ludi Apollinares, and the games were actually founded more than a century earlier by an ancestor of his, a certain other Cornelius Sulla, during the perilous years of the war with Hannibal. And Sulla wants to do justice to his ancestors, to give the Roman populace a show that they'll be talking about for years, something to remember him by. So he has his friend King Bocchus send a hundred wild beasts from Numidia, elephants, lions, ostriches, deer, and a team of Numidian hunters to shoot, net, chop, and stab them all down in front of roaring Roman audiences in the Circus Maximus. This was before they built the Colosseum. Now, for a man to spend that kind of money to put on that kind of show is a clear indication to all that Sulla has a run for the consulship in his mind. But it's also a testament to something Sulla is increasingly making known these days, namely his enormous piety to the gods and to Apollo, most of all, who happened to be his favorite. And it was after his year as praetor that Sulla makes his first acquaintance with a region that was destined to characterize his legacy. He gets a foreign governorship. Now, only former praetors and consuls are eligible for these, and a foreign governorship is one way to make back whatever huge sums of money you spent on the election, and then some. There are business connections to make, gifts to accept, but most importantly, there are adventures and new friends to be had. And Sulla gets sent out to Cilicia, but upon arrival, he immediately gets redirected by the Senate on an emergency mission to nearby Cappadocia. And the Romans have several provinces lying in this region of Asia Minor, but also several nominally independent client kings who are really Roman vassals. And Sulla's new job is to reinstall the client king of Cappadocia, which is in central Turkey today. And this new king, his name is Ario Barzanes. He's supposed to make sure that the region stays friendly to Roman interests. But this is a tricky job for Sulla because of the man responsible for chasing Ario Barzanis out in the first place, a man not particularly friendly to Roman interests. That was the new king of the neighboring region called Pontus to the north on the Black Sea coast. His name is Mithridates, the poison king, as one book calls him. Mithridates is wily, he's aggressive, and he is not a vassal of the Romans. He's been expanding his reach in the area, seizing territories, elbowing into positions of influence in the neighboring states. And Sulla is given very few troops to accomplish his mission. He has to rely mainly on allied soldiers in the area. And he manages to beat Mithridates' armies back enough to put the Roman client king back on the throne, to put this Ario Barzani's guy back in power. And this was by no means the last time that he was going to face off with Mithridates, but we'll get to that later. Now, for a Roman to beat back Mithridates with a modest force of local troops was very impressive, and it turns many heads in the region. And after his campaign, he takes a diplomatic tour deep into the hinterland, to the borders of ancient Armenia, to the banks of the great Euphrates River, and as he's there, Sulla receives an embassy from the great king of Persia. And this is a ruler from the Parthian dynasty. And the great 
Parthian king of Persia, wishes to be friends and allies of the Romans. And so Sulla receives the ambassador at his camp and they have a little parley. And this was held to be another instance of Sulla's famous good luck, that he, Lucius Cornelius Sulla, was the first Roman to ever meet the Parthians, and on terms of friendship and alliance at that. Among other matters, they agreed on the Euphrates River as the effective border between their spheres of influence. And the Parthians, in fact, went on to be Rome's great rival in the East for the next 300 years. Now, this Parthian ambassador has in his retinue a priest, a priest of the Chaldeans, which is a group of people that the Persians hold in high esteem as diviners and soothsayers. And the story goes, as Plutarch recounts, quote, The man, after looking Sulla intently in the face and studying carefully the movements of his mind and body and investigating his nature according to the principles of his peculiar art, declared that this man must of necessity become the greatest in the world, and that the wonder was that even now he tolerated not already being first of all men. And so maybe it was in that moment that Sulla came to believe that he truly was somehow set apart, blessed by the gods with some higher destiny, that he was Sulla Felix, that is, Sulla the Fortunate, the Lucky, as later, when he was master of all, he had his name officially changed to include. Perhaps this moment was the origin of that unshakable confidence Sulla possessed that made him believe that even if he dared the most unthinkable, unspeakable acts, all would turn out well for him. Well, now it was time to start laying the groundwork for his bid for the consulship. Sulla makes a few calculated provocations against his old commander, Gaius Marius, suggesting that it was he, Sulla, who deserved credit for the Jugurtha victory. And things are starting to get tense, but before the situation can reach a resolution, Rome is faced with a crisis so massive that it makes the elites put aside all their differences. War is breaking out in Italy itself. Rome has built its Mediterranean-wide empire over the last 150 years with considerable help from allies all over Italy. But there are great numbers of these culturally very similar Italian people who are fighting in the same wars, speaking Latin now, doing business in the city of Rome, but are not Roman citizens. When they're in Greece or Numidia, the locals look at them with awe and reverence as conquerors, as basically Romans. But in Rome itself... They're looked down upon. They can't run for office. Their interests aren't being represented in the political system. And in 91 BC, after many attempts by progressive politicians to bring them into the fold, several major Italian peoples decide they are fed up. And after smoldering for years, they finally burst into flame and revolt. It's now called the Social War. Social from the Latin word socius, which means ally. And we talked more about the social war and the life of Marius. And over the three years that lasted, the great Marius did score a few minor victories. But mainly, Marius disappointed people's expectations of him. 
Some blamed his old age, others were suspicious of his favoritism toward the Italians, saying that he was reluctant to wage war on people who were, up until recently, his greatest base of power and patronage. Maybe he was hedging his bets somehow. But Sulla's record in the social war, however, is unambiguously brilliant. Among the Roman populace, there is talk of Sulla being one of Rome's great generals. His friends and partisans start calling him Rome's greatest. And even his enemies conceded that he was, without a doubt, the luckiest. And unlike some leaders who would take this bit about being lucky as an insult, as though Sulla was great only because of his good fortune and not because of his skill or personal qualities, Sulla gladly accepted it as a compliment, and he loudly joined in in magnifying the aid of heaven in all that he did. And in his memoirs later, Sulla even wrote that of all the actions he took— which seemed like they were wisely chosen to others, it was those that he dared on the spur of the moment and not after some considered deliberation, which turned out for the best. Today we might simply say that he had exceptionally good instinct. But then, what was it, or who was it, that granted a man instinct in the first place and guaranteed that it remained in place throughout his life? Was it not some power beyond human understanding, a divinity? And when... As Sulla was on the march near Tuscany, a great chasm opened up in the earth nearby from which a great quantity of fire burst forth and a bright flame shot up to the heavens. And the soothsayers, when they saw, declared that a brave man of rare courage and exceptional looks was destined to take control of the government and free the city from its troubles. Well, Sulla could only observe the obvious fact that he fit the description perfectly it was time to run for consul. Sulla returns to the city in 89 BC as the social war is winding down. He puts in his candidature and wins. Well then, it was time now to rearrange his personal relations to suit his new station in life. His colleague in the consulship is another optimate from a good family, Quintus Pompeius Rufus, an ally, and Sulla cements their friendship by marrying his daughter to the man's son. And then, Sulla is on his third wife by that point, but he divorces poor Cloelia and marries into the most powerful political family of his age, the Metelli. His new wife, number four, was actually the widow of the man who had long been the invisible hand of the conservative party in the Senate, that righteous purger of Roman dinner tables from the influence of foreign shellfish and exotic birds, Aemilius Scaurus himself. The old man had conveniently died the year before. And so, thus, at age 49, Sulla has at last restored the long-lost dignity of his little branch of the Gens Cornelia. And this crowning achievement comes not a moment too soon. A new war is breaking out in the East this time. It was potentially disastrous. No, already disastrous. It was a potentially epic-marking catastrophe. With the social war still in full rage, the wily king of Pontus, Mithridates, lured a Roman commander in Asia into a foolish war in 89 BC. The commander there, Manius Aquilius was his name. He was an old buddy of Marius. He was himself the son of a famously corrupt and plundering governor of Asia. Well, 
Mithridates secretly leveraged local discontent to build support for himself in this Roman province, and then he swept in suddenly and sent the Roman forces scurrying like rats. Mithridates captures Aquilius, and in a great symbolic gesture punishing Roman greed, he executes him by having molten gold poured down his throat in front of a packed arena. And Mithridates fully intends to exploit Rome's domestic crisis with the social war in order to completely redraw the map of the eastern Mediterranean. A panic ensues at Rome. Tax revenues from Asia are an extremely important organ in the Roman financial system, sort of the equivalent of mortgage-backed securities in the 2008 financial crisis. Almost every rich man somehow is exposed. There are loans leveraged against the income from these revenues. And the possibility of losing the province of Asia in one fell, unpredicted swoop is terrifying. The Senate declares war. Now, the Senate is responsible for assigning military commands. And Sulla, as one of the new consuls with a brilliant war record, he's an obvious choice for general to lead the war. And it looks like the goddess Fortuna is smiling on him again because the Senate does indeed assign Sulla the command. But then things got complicated. Why is it that sometimes the leaders of a people, when they're faced with one great crisis, they choose not to rally all together in the common interests, but instead turn to fight amongst themselves and create in the process an even greater danger? Is it fear and desperation that impel people to act irrationally in these kind of cases? Is it panic, making every man fight for himself? Or is it possibly because the ambitious and the capable see in a great challenge the greatest possible prize to be won? Because they regard honor as the most worthwhile thing in life, and it seems to them that the route to that honor lies in solving the greatest problem for the community. In other words, Is it precisely the right to lead in a crisis that is the most desirable prize that a man could possibly win? But then, is any prize worth starting a civil war over? It's said that around this time there were many strange portents and prophecies foretelling dark trouble for the Roman state, fire breaking out spontaneously, sounds of thunder in a clear sky, birds and mice seen devouring their young, The senators gather together in the temple of Bellona, the goddess of war, to listen to some analysis on these things by the soothsayers. And the holy men explain that, according to their prophetic lore, there are eight ages in all, differing from one another in the lives and customs of men. And to each of these, the god has appointed a definite span, a long era of time that the soothsayers call a great year. And whenever this great year has run its course and another is beginning, the gods send wondrous signs that make it clear to anyone who studies such subjects that men of other habits and different modes of life have now come into the world, men whom the gods love either more or less, and only time can tell which is the case. And now such signs were indeed appearing. A new era was dawning, one which would inevitably be ushered in by violence. So then, how did it all start? Well, there were murmurs going around that at various mob rallies, 
Another name was getting bandied about by Rome's lowlifes. There seemed to have been men who thought old Gaius Marius should be given the command for the war against Mithridates, Rome's savior, Rome's finest. Well, he certainly was among Rome's weightiest politicians by that point. You could hardly blame him. In Rome, whether it was good times or bad times, the parties of the rich were always grand. It was hard to keep the pounds off. But Marius was in no condition to lead a war. How could he dream of that? And anyway, the decision was already made, wasn't it? Well, there's a certain office in the Roman political system. Not a grand office, a relatively humble one, really, in theory. And holders of that office usually keep their heads down, go with the flow. But that office has unique powers that make it impossible to be absolutely certain about, well, almost any settled matter in Roman politics. The office is called the Tribune of the Plebs, Tribune of the People, Champion of the People, you might say, Public Defender. There are 12 of them at a time, it's a one-year term, and if, if the Tribune of the Plebs can get massive popular support for a measure, he can call a certain kind of popular assembly and he can push through almost any policy, even without the approval of the Senate or the magistrates. You were supposed to get that approval, but you didn't have to. And to forego that was extremely high risk. It could be career suicide for them to do so because they are extremely vulnerable when their term is up. And you would also need some massive amount of discontent and energy to override the will of the establishment. Well, one of the ways that the Romans ended up neutralizing the Italian rebels in the social war was by offering citizenship to any Italians who would fight on the Roman side. Citizenship was, after all, the coveted bone of contention that was the cause of the whole war, and so this move eroded the rebels' support long enough to turn the tide of the war. It worked. But then, these great flocks of newly minted Italian citizens are all, in a manner of speaking, gerrymandered into one big voting district. And they were going to vote last and count for very little in any poll or election. The establishment felt that this was a good and fair way to keep them from being too disruptive, being rude and throwing their influence around and so on. But there was a lot of discontent about this, understandably. And an ambitious young tribune of the plebs was elected. His name was Sulpicius. He was a kid from a good family, optimate stock. And Sulpicius tries to reason with the establishment. If you nobles could come out and present yourselves as the patrons of these new Romans, show yourselves to be welcoming by giving them more of a share of the vote, well, couldn't that work in the nobility's interests? Surely these Italians know how to return a favor. But the optimates tell them to drop the issue. Know your role, kid. You don't understand how these things work. And in fact, the optimates rebuff him in such an insulting way that they drive Sulpicius into the arms of the opposition, chief among them to old Gaius Marius, who is still very popular with the Italians and the Roman lower classes. He still has huge influence. He knows how to assemble a citizen crowd to vote in radical measures. And unknown to anyone, Sulpicius and Marius make a fateful deal. And this takes several stages to unfold. First, Sulpicius calls a plebiscite. And everyone knows what he's going to propose. His plan is to redistribute the new Roman citizens from all over Italy into the normal Roman voting blocks called tribes that will give them more influence with their votes. 
The Senate is forcefully opposed to this measure. This law would totally disrupt tradition. In other words, it would disrupt the establishment's heavy influence on the voting system, which has been built over generations. But really, what chance does Sulpicius have to pass it? But on the day of the assembly, word gets to the consuls that there assembled in the voting grounds are Marius's mob of supporters. Marius's men? Suddenly the consuls realize some sort of deal has been made. With Marius's constituency showing up at the polls, Sulpicius may actually pass this redistricting law. And so the consuls pull out their own trump card. The consuls declare the day a holiday, that is, a holy day, ferii in Latin, which is incidentally where we get our word fair, as in county fair. But to have ferii means that no public acts are valid for that period. But then things get wild. Sulpicius is ready for this. His supporters, some 3,000 of them, he calls them his anti-senate, they march into the forum where the consuls are holding a meeting and they bring concealed daggers. A violent riot breaks out and chaos and anarchy spread through the streets. Both of the consuls retreat from the forum and even with their lictor bodyguards, they stand no chance. They're vastly outnumbered. The optimates then bring in their own thugs and it gets bloody. And in the fighting, the consul Pompeius's own son, that is Sulla's son-in-law, he gets stabbed and dies. Sulla himself flees through the streets, and at one point he ends up cornered near the forum and he takes refuge, of all places, in the house of Gaius Marius. What was that visit like? What did Sulla discuss with his old commander at what would end up being their last earthly meeting? What hard bargain might Marius have driven? What deal might he have offered Sulla to try to get Sulla to back down and let Sulpicius's laws pass? And you know, considering what Marius was planning, how good of a pretender, an actor, must he have been to keep Sulla, of all people, from suspecting what was actually coming? Sulla slips out of Marius' house when the coast is clear, and he reinstates public business the next day. Yes, in order to end the violence, he just allows this whole citizenship thing to take its course. Sulla leaves the next day to join his army. He earlier left them sieging some rebel holdouts in southern Italy at Nola among the Samnites. Of course, what happened in Rome was utterly humiliating, personally and politically, but he can make up for it with a foreign victory, make a comeback later. It was time to go east to face King Mithridates. Mithridates is meanwhile sweeping through Asia in a vacuum of Roman power, and the situation is getting dire. But only a few days after Sulla reaches his camp, legates arrive at his tent from Rome. Sulpicius has called a plebiscite. He passed his Italian voting plan all right, but then he also passed an extraordinary measure. According to a vote of the people of Rome, Sulla is to be deposed of his command, and Marius is to lead the war against Mithridates. The legates demand from Sulla the general's official insignia, the army's treasury, and its account books. So, that 
was Marius's deal with Sulpicius. Marius wants one last shot at glory for the history books. What was he, 70 years old now? No doubt most of the Senate had protested with many imprecations and outraged waving of hands. Useless. All that work, restoring the dignity of the house of Cornelius Sulla. All that work in the service of Rome. And this is where it ends up. Sulla summons his troops for a general assembly, some 25,000 men. And he stands on his consular dais above the crowd. And he looks out at his soldiers, standing at attention. Faces he knows well. Some of the old-timers have been fighting with him since he was a young green quaestor in Numidia. Some of these men he crossed the Alps with in the Cimbrian Wars. Some of them are relatively new recruits, many Italians from the country tribes. Some of them have never even been to Rome, care little about the Senate, about the nuances of what is considered honorable or shameful among polite Roman society. But all of them have spent the last three years with Sulla, fighting one of the most vicious wars Rome has ever seen against other Italians who looked like them, often spoke the same language as them, against rebels intimately familiar with Roman battle tactics and the Roman style of fighting because they were once themselves elite regiments in the Roman coalition, against brothers. The rebels were hardly distinguishable on the battlefield from Romans. And under Sulla, these men conquered again and again. He looks out at his men. How many favors has he done for them, asking nothing in return? How many of their names can he recite? What are they really fighting for? What's in their hearts? Where do their loyalties really lie? He addresses them in a manner something like this. My fellow citizens, old and new, these legates here inform me that a plebiscite has been called in Rome. I am to be deposed of this command, and Gaius Marius is to be given charge of the war against Mithridates. He could sense the shock. There were boos. I need not remind you that Gaius Marius has his own soldiers, his own veterans, his own army that he will surely prefer to use. So I don't think it will be us who get to teach a lesson to that effeminate Pontian princeling. We will not see Asia then, with its rich treasures, its beautiful women, its fine wine. And he... Let that sink in for a little while. He could see the horror on their faces, the disappointment of their greatest desires. More booze. He smiled. No, do not protest. It is what the people wished. An assembly of townsfolk. Shopkeepers and tanners. Oh, yes, and the rich merchants, of course, that Gaius Marius keeps in his pocket. A plebiscite. And I am told that Sulpicius had his anti-senate there, offering their protection over the proceedings. It was only proper. More booze. Indignation was building. He scans the crowd, trying to see, trying to see. His smile vanishes. My countrymen, citizens old and new, you have lost life and limb defending the Republic against barbarian hordes, against treacherous oath-breakers. Citizens, tyrants, control your city. 
They force the mob to do their bidding. Lawless men have stripped a standing consul of his authority. Screams of fury erupting now. The legates from Rome are starting to look nervous. Sulla searches his soldiers' faces with that piercing gaze. A consul. Ha! But you know me. I'm but a man. You know where I started from, don't you? Where did I learn to outdrink you? Where did I learn to outgamble, outfight, outparty you all? Was it not the same bars and brothels, the same battle lines as you? And the same fortune that dragged me drunk out of the tavern, that led me out from carousing in the backstage and pushed me up onto the rostra, up onto this tribunal, to lead you, the greatest army of the greatest city on earth. That fortune asks us, what shall we do? My countrymen, will you follow me? Will you obey me in all? The soldiers roar. Yes, we will follow. We will obey. Now Sulla's officers are starting to look at each other nervously. What's he doing? What's he saying? Follow him where? Obey in what? The soldiers are getting rowdy. Sulla stands and waits, watches and listens, searches and smiles. More acclamations from the soldiers. Sulla the Great. Yes. Death to the tyrants. Very good. And then he hears it. Sulla, save Rome. To Rome. To Rome. Yes. At last. There she was. He recognized her immediately. It was the goddess smiling upon him. Fortune was with them. And so, Lucius Cornelius Sulla marched on Rome at the head of an army in order to force a resolution that was by that point impossible through any normal political process. This was unprecedented. In 400 years of Republican government, no Roman commander had ever done anything of the sort. Surely men of the past thought no troops would follow them in arms against their own country. But Sulla saw clearer than any leader of his time that these were not the old Roman citizen soldiers of bygone days. These men came from diverse backgrounds all over Italy. Some of them were newly minted Roman citizens. They didn't have the same quasi-religious scruples about the sacredness of the Roman political system or the lines that no citizen was supposed to cross. They could see the plain fact that their commander, whom they adored, had been outrageously wronged by his rivals and that they were going to lose out on the opportunity of a lifetime. This injustice had to be corrected. Sulla didn't have to tell them where to go. He let them choose the course of action. And in their rage, Sulla's troops seized the legates who came to demand Sulla's resignation and they stoned them to death. And they march six legions of fighting men. Sulla's officers, all but one or two, abandon him and flee to the city. The Senate sends several more embassies out to try to reason with Sulla to conciliate him. They are ignored. A final embassy is sent by Marius and Sulpicius themselves. And Plutarch recounts what happened to these. Quote, These legates came to forbid their advance, but they addressed Sulla with excessive boldness whereupon his soldiers would have gladly torn them to pieces, 
but contented themselves with breaking their fasces, their ceremonial rods of authority, and stripping them of their senatorial togas, insulting them in many ways and sending them back to the city. And when the legates arrived in the city, the Romans were thrown into a terrible dejection at the mere sight of them, stripped as they were of their praetorial insignia, and even more so when they announced that the sedition could no longer be checked, but must now run its course. End quote. Within a few days, Sulla is at the walls of the city, and within a few more days, he is master of Rome. And with that, the first moves were made in the great half-a-century-long struggle known as the Roman Civil War, sometimes called the Roman Revolution. But after telling the story this far, we have only reached the beginning. And with Mithridates still flooding through the east unchecked, it looked as though darker days were ahead. Now, even though we may not wish to imitate Sulla's violence or his debauchery, his story already has offered many lessons that may be useful. If you are young and aspire to leadership in the near or distant future, consider Sulla's activity in Numidia. From the start, he realized the potential of doing favors for people and building up rapport and credit with the common soldiery. He was always helping people out, never asking for anything in return. Sure, he hoped it would come around someday, but he knew life is uncertain, and it would have been a supreme lack of ambition on his part to be transactional about his giving, to cash in all his goodwill as soon as he could, rather than let it build interest over time. Because building goodwill is like an investment in the future. If people think well of you, word spreads, and as long as you stay active in generosity and helpfulness, your good reputation can compound. Being a giver is good and enjoyable in the present for its own sake, but the sort of man who helps people is also the sort of man people will want to help in the future. And this may give you incredible options. Second, when facing intractable enemies, learn a tool of deception from Sulla's dealings with Jugurtha. If you need to trick someone, Distract them with the prospect of attaining something they desire furiously. Jugurtha was a brilliant and conniving master of realpolitik. He had already lured many rivals and enemies into traps and killed them, including several family members. He was not going to be an easy man to capture. Sulla put himself at great risk, effectively handing himself over to the care and mercy of Jugurtha's father-in-law, King Bocchus, whose faithfulness he had many reasons to doubt. But Sulla knew that his own real vulnerability would give Jugurtha reasons to hope. Jugurtha's desire to capture Sulla blinded him, and his hope made him put too much faith in his father-in-law. Jugurtha trusted Bocchus and thought he would betray Sulla, but in doing so, Bocchus would have been making an enemy of the greatest military power in the world— Jugurtha was the one who walked into a trap, foolishly, because his desires clouded his judgment. He should have known better. Sulla read people's desires very well. He read Jugurtha's. He read the desires of his troops that fateful day at Nola, and on many other occasions too. And this is a form of wisdom of Sophia, but it makes you wonder, could you not say that this very habit of partying and indulging his pleasures in the company of others 
provided, as it were, a laboratory for him, for examining the effects of desire from the most noble to the most animalistic. Stay tuned for part two. If you got something worthwhile out of this, you know what to do. But I'll remind you, tell a friend, leave a good review. But more importantly, raise the bar in your life and act accordingly. Stay strong, stay ancient. This is Alex Petkus. Until next time. Okay, this is Ben. I'm back. I hope you guys enjoyed this as much as I did. I love that episode. If you did enjoy it, please go check out The Cost of Glory wherever you get your podcasts. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.